Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Allie Stroker to the podcast. Allie is a Tony Award-winning actor, disability activist, and author who is here to talk about her book, Cut Loose, which she co-wrote with Stacey Davidowitz. This middle-grade novel is the sequel and companion to their previous book, A Chance to Fly, and it follows Nat, who is a middle schooler who uses a wheelchair and is a total theater nerd. I love her. It's a story about embracing your strengths, standing out, and standing up for what you believe in. Today, Allie and I talk about writing a good story versus teaching kids a lesson, the lack of accessibility in the theater, and the power in saying no to certain opportunities. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for November is Severance by Ling Ma, and we will discuss that book on Wednesday, November 29th with Mitchell S. Jackson. Everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love The Stacks and you want inside access to it, join The Stacks Pack on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash The Stacks. The Stacks Pack is a community of book people who have extremely good taste, if I do say so myself. I mean, they do like this show, so duh. To join, it's just $5 a month and you get access to perks like our Discord, our virtual monthly book club meetups, bonus episodes, plus anyone who is a member of the Stacks Pack at the end of this year gets access to my extremely detailed and fantastic reading tracker. Plus, and I think this part is the most important, by joining the Stacks Pack, you get to know that you're helping to support this independent podcast, make episodes every single week. So head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. And here's a shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Danielle Levesque, John Caleb Green, and Mia. Thank you all so much for joining and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. And now it is time for my conversation with Allie Stroker. All right, everybody. I am so excited today. I am joined by my friend from college who I've known since we were babies. You were 18. I was probably 19 because I'm a great ahead of you. She's also a Tony Award winner. She's also an author. She also has the voice of a fucking angel meets a goddess. I am thrilled to welcome to the show, Allie Stroker. Allie, welcome to the Sacks. Thank you, Trace. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited. I can't believe, first of all, I can't believe that you're a two-time published author, three-time published author. 
I can't either. I never thought I was going to write a book, but let alone three. Okay, so, here so we we'll start here. The book is called Cut Loose. Tell people in about 30 seconds or so what the book's about. Okay, so Cut Loose, we are back with our main character, Nat Beacon, who uh, has just moved from California to New Jersey, and she starts middle school, eighth grade, at a new school, and they are doing the musical Footloose, and she auditions, and she's really nervous about uh, getting cast. She is a girl in a wheelchair, and uh, she ends up getting the lead, but she gets, like, a lot of kind of backlash from the girls from the school, and... uh, the show gets nominated for a Timmy Award, which is like the Jimmys. And Wait, people she, who don't know what the Jimmys are, tell them. Because I'd never okay. heard of the Jimmys, and I'm in the theater world a little bit. Yeah, so side note. So the Jimmys are like a high school theater competition where your high school teacher submits your musical or your show, and judges come. And then <laughs> if you are nominated, you get an opportunity to come to New York and uh, like do a number or a solo on a Broadway stage. And so the Timmys are for middle school, the middle school version of this. Correct. We made this up. And so her school gets chosen and then uh, her number gets chosen. And I'm not going to give away the end, but there's lots of things that happen. And it was such a pleasure to write this sequel. Okay. I have, I have so many questions about like the origins of this story and of, yes. of these books. This is the second book. Why did you want to write a book for middle grade kids? Why not write for adults? Why not write for high schoolers? Like, why was this audience exciting to you? Because at the time of starting this, you did not have any children. You are not a middle schooler. I, I don't know if you know a lot of middle schoolers, but I haven't talked to one in like 25 years. So I'm just curious, like, why this grade age group for you? So two reasons. First of all, um, my co-author, Stacey Davidowitz, she approached me about interviewing me because she wanted to write a character who uses a wheelchair who is into theater. And I sort of pitched, what if we wrote a book about that character? And Uh she was like, what? And I was like, (laughs) she was like, you would want to do that? And I was like, yeah, I think so. I hadn't thought it through, but she writes middle grade. Got so it. that was the first piece of it. But the second part is that I hated to read in middle school and I never had one book with one character that I was like, I, that's me. Right. Or like, I relate to that. Or like, that's real. Like I'm having those experiences and those feelings too. Um, so I, and, and I really struggled in middle school. I like needed these books. I needed I needed characters. I needed representation. And it just didn't really exist for me. Do you remember the first time and how old you were when you felt like you did see representation of someone like you in whatever way? Um, I remember in elementary school, I was asked by this really beautiful woman who lived in, I think, California to do like an exercise video with her. And she was in a wheelchair. And I was like, oh, maybe like I would be like that when I'm older. Mm. But like, seriously, Tracy, like I never really felt like I met someone like me until I was like 21. And I moved to LA. And I met Chelsea Hill. Mm. And Chelsea is um, like, runs the Rolettes, which is a like a wheelchair dance team and they're based in LA and Chelsea and I became best friends. And that was the first time I was like, there I am. That's, But it was with a friend. It wasn't right. like, like it character. wasn't in pop culture or like in a book or a movie or a TV show or on Broadway, obviously. 
Yeah. I feel, I mean, this is not where I wanted to start at all, but we're here. So I think we should talk about it. I think one of the things like, and, and I can speak to this as someone who's known you for a long time is like, you were the first person I ever knew closely in a wheelchair. And I think because you are you, regardless of if you're in a wheelchair or not, I just like was like, oh, Allie's so grounded and like has such a great personality. And she's such a go-getter and she's so talented. And it didn't really dawn on me until much later in life that like it would have been a challenge to not have seen yourself or like feel like, I mean, you were at NYU and New York is a challenging city to get around in a wheelchair. And NYU is a challenging place to get around, period, like emotionally and physically. So, you know, what what does it mean for you now to be this person for other people? Because I know that you've become, you know, I know you're an activist and I know that you've become sort of like the the girl on Broadway in a wheelchair, right? Like, so what's that? Is that great? Is that horrible? You know, it's not something that like I set out to do. Right. Of course. So when I got to NYU, I was not identifying as having a disability. I was just like, I'm in a wheelchair. And there were a lot of parts of my identity that I was not, that I had not wrapped my arms around yet. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of maybe why you felt that from me. Yeah. Because I I didn't really go there. And that's true for probably most kids in college is like, there's like, I don't think that I really identified like strongly as being black in college. Right. Right. right, You know, so like, I think that's probably part of it's like you want to fit in and especially at a place like NYU. Exactly. So competitive. But anyway, sorry to cut you off. (laughs) No, but you're, but exactly what you're saying in that, like when we were in college in like 2004, five, six, seven, eight, nine, (laughs) you know, it was, it was before the Hamiltons um, and before like diversity became hot Mm -hmm. and like cool. And so for me, I was just like crossing my fingers that I'd get cast, that I could like fit in, in so many ways. Um, And I just wanted to be included. And I never talked about it in college, but I had a really hard time when I first got to NYU because Cap didn't want me to do the dance program Mm. because I was in a chair. Cap is the musical theater program at NYU, which is where I was. It's okay. It's okay. I know. I know. But (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So so they didn't want me to do the dance program. And I was like, no, I really, really want to do this. Like, let's go slow. I like advocated for myself, but there was a lot of um, real eye-opening moments when I first moved to New York that I was like, oh, I'm not in my little bubble of Ridgewood, New Jersey anymore. Mm. And I think some reality started to hit, but I was so clear that I wanted to do theater and that like I was going to be on Broadway one day. I didn't know like how, yeah. but it was never like if it was like, I'm going to do this, but I just don't know how, I, I don't know like how it's going to work yet. And then like, I don't know, back to your sort of main point about <laughs> bringing this up is that like, I, um, being this like kind of person that was like, that has done things for the first time, mm-hmm. like a first, it has felt really exciting, but also I think a little bit scary because I'm like, how is this just happening now? Right. Like it just, it, 
it kind of brought me back to like, what has been happening? And how does the world feel about somebody with a disability? And like, um, it just like, it's, it's sort of like shocked me in, in certain ways, because I think that, um, again, so much of my identity of being disabled when I was younger and, um, in college was just like pushed to the side Mm -hmm. and now really wrapping my arms around it and like really loving my community and learning about the history of what's happened to people with disabilities, um, in our country. It's just been so, it's made me grow so much as a person. Yeah. That's really powerful. Do you, so one of the questions I have about the book is sort of like, you know, our lead character, she's in a wheelchair, but sort of like what you're saying, you know, it's like, that's one part of the story. It's one part of her identity. And obviously it's a, it's a big part of her identity and big part of her story, but also like her being a musical theater nerd is equally a big part of her story and a big part of her identity. And I'm wondering how were you and Stacy, your co-author thinking about balancing like teaching your audience? Cause you are dealing with like a younger audience for, versus storytelling and like making that feel whole. I think the way that we wanted to balance storytelling and teaching was that I wanted Nat's journey and her arc to be real. Mm -hmm. So anything that like had to do like specific, specific stuff with like her wheelchair, I wrote and I really wanted it to be authentic and real because that's what I was missing. Right. Um, And then as far as like storytelling, like that I think is – Stacy's expertise mm, okay. because she writes middle grade. So yeah. she knows sort of how to create the arcs and create like when things need to happen and what happens with relationship and characters. Um, and that has been so cool for me too, because yeah. like I do, I'm an actor and right. so I don't normally write books. And right. so I've learned so much about how you need to shape a specifically middle grade book in order for it to work for young readers. Um, So, you know, I think it was a little bit of both, but I felt super strongly about making all these little, little moments, like moments where she has to take the lift in the cafeteria and the elevator. I made a note of that. I literally was like, because I remember taking cabs with you in college. Like I remember. And so that, that scene in particular was like such a moment for me reading the book. Yeah. So those were like real, those like were real things that happened. And some of them were a little bit more like emphasized for storytelling, but I also really wanted um, Nat's ableism to come out Mm -hmm. with Elliot. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a character in the book who's also in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And this was the case for me when I was in middle school there was another kid in our grade who used a wheelchair. He had CP. And I remember being so scared that like, mm. if we were together, then like I would look more disabled. And that's like my ableism, like a hundred percent. But I didn't understand that at the time. And I have finally been able to articulate this. I think the reason why I didn't have friends with disabilities for so long was that it was like looking in the mirror Mm. when I was with them. And there were so many parts of me that I was afraid of and I was afraid of the world seeing. And it was just like in my face if I had a friend who had a disability or was in a wheelchair. And so those little moments, like that stuff is real and I really wanted to include it. And like, 
our publishers pushed back on it. They were like, I don't know if we should do this. Like, you know, that particular, like that relationship. And I was like, we have to do it because I know so many people who are disabled, who have ableist views and have things that they're super afraid of about the disabled community. Yeah. When you got older and you started to like embrace the disabled community, how did that feel for you to like start having friends who had disabilities? Was it was it scary for you or or did it feel right instantly or something was, in between? It was super scary. Um, but I think what was so easy about it happening was that it was the people, right. like the people that I was friends with, like, and then when I realized that we could talk about our disabilities together, mm. it was like this huge weight was lifted off my back. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't have to carry this alone. Like other people have these experiences, too. Yeah. But I always felt super alone when mm. I was growing up that like nobody else must feel this and nobody else has to do these kinds of things. Um, and so I think it was like super freeing. Mm-hmm. But it was scary because there was a part of me that like really um protected myself for so long so to let down that guard right. was sort of like it was sort of like going out on a date right, right? because right. like you're about to be seen and they're seeing you in a way that you've been really afraid of being seen too yeah i i i can relate to some of what you're saying um like like i mentioned before like i don't feel like i really embraced being black so much until I got older. And then it's like you get into these communities and part of it is like this fear because you've been so like judgmental of yourself Mm -hmm. and of your community. But then there's this other part that feels so comfortable because you're like, I don't have to explain this. Like you get it, you felt it, you've seen it. Like these little things that I thought I was the only person who noticed this, like you've noticed this too. And I think that like, you know, I think that's why so many people from marginalized backgrounds talk about community. Cause like it's so powerful, but unless you're raised in, in community, you don't necessarily know what that means or feels like. Yeah. And, and I was, um, so my brother has a disability, but we were raised kind of where like we were very rarely around disabled people and it was before social media. Right. Right. So there wasn't like, Oh, like I want to look up older girls that are in wheelchairs and like see how they wear their jeans or like how they wear their heels, Mm. like little, little things that I felt so alone in navigating, which meant a lot to me then. Right. 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 Of course. Um, Okay, I wanted to ask a little bit. You mentioned this before about how you and Stacy work together. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that she's sort of like storytelling guru. You are giving it like those really personal, like specific touches. How much of how like how did y'all put the story together? How much of it is like your brainchild? How much of it is hers? How did you actually work together? Did you get together in a room? Did you have a Google Doc? Like, can you walk us sort of through? I'm always so fascinated by co-authors because it's kind of rare in books. And also every time I've ever had a co-author or co-authors on together, their process is totally different than the other set of co-authors. So I'm really curious about that. So Stacy is the kind of person that when I'm with her, like, 
my ideas start to like stir. Mm, love and, like, those I kind can't... of people. Yes, <laughs> yes, no, yes. And so like my creativity starts to go because she's such a theater kid. She mm-hmm. did so much theater growing up. Okay. She feels like somebody that I grew up doing theater with. Got it. And so um, the first time that we worked together, we met in person. This was for The Chance to Fly, our first book. The first one. We met together and we created an outline. <laughs> and it was amazing because we were so yes-anding everything (laughs) like she just says yes to me and then it makes me like i have great ideas (laughs) i'm a genius where's my nobel prize (laughs) exactly like you need yeah you need that i feel like especially when you're doing something new which writing a book was new for me yeah and then she's so experienced in the writing process she knew how to take all these ideas and like create them into chapters Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we talked about first in the outline were the characters. And we had so much fun with it. And it felt a little bit like being in acting class and making up your own characters. Mm. Like, that's what it felt like to me. Yeah. And so the first time that we wrote together, we created this outline. And then she took a chapter and I would take a chapter. And then I'd send everything. You know, I'd read her stuff, obviously. But I wasn't, like, a part of, like, editing Mm -hmm. stuff together. She was doing all that because she knew how to create that and the dialogue. And we have like chats in our book because like the group of kids had a chat. Um, And she's really good with all like the theater Easter eggs. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so many. (laughs) There's so many. Like that is, that is Stacy. That is like a hundred percent. So, um, which I just love. And so, The second time, once The Chance to Fly was out, we wrote an outline in one conversation. Like, I remember where I was. I was out on the path up in Ardsley where we were living. It was like 2020. Like, we were in the pandemic. And we had released the book. And we were like, "There." it sounds like the publishers want to do a um, sequel. And like, we wrote that outline for Cut Loose in like an hour. Wow. I was just like going and Stacey was just like typing and then she was like, yeah, and what if this and what if this and what if this? And then things changed as we wrote the book. Right. But that original outline is how I think creativity and an idea and some kind of uh, new spark should feel. Yeah. I it was just that. like so easy Tracy like we were just like boom 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 and I was so excited and then I got pregnant and I was like okay like I want to take on like certain pieces of this but like I know myself and like my brain right now is not like gonna be doing like full chapters and so I would take certain portions that she would send to me she was like work on this work on this And that's sort of how we did cut loose. And she was really, really helpful with the edits because I just had the baby. And so I was like a bit of a mess. (laughs) Did you notice a difference in yourself from writing with the first book versus the second book in relationship to being pregnant? Like, could you sense the the difference for you? A hundred percent. Because all of a sudden I was like, it's, this isn't just for like any kid. This could be like for my kid. Mm. So like I really wanted it to be good. I really wanted it to be specific. And also like something about becoming a parent has really opened my eyes to the way that we 
like are creating like how we write the world mm-hmm. for younger people. Mm-hmm. And like I think that I used to really love when like things were edgy when I was growing up. Yeah. And I sort of have taken like the other side of it that like I want there to be like the magic and the soft moments in this world because I think it's changed so much and that I think with that young people deserve to have that um while they're young because yeah. then they're going to understand the realities of our world and it's not all rainbows very soft no (laughs) butterflies it's so funny that you say that Allie because I also am like very into Mm. like dark things like Mm. I like to read about guns and Mm -hmm. racism and Mm -hmm. wars but when I was reading Cut Loose I was just thinking like this is so wholesome in a way that just feels really nice and obviously I am not the target audience like I'm an adult and like I said I like guns and war but mm-hmm. I am a theater kid at heart. And there was something about this book that like really spoke to that part of me because I do think that there's something about the theater that is like inherently wholesome, not yeah. necessarily in actuality, but like the nostalgia of the theater and like the desire of being a young person in the theater. Like what, like the earnestness of like, we have to make a great show, you know, like the, that's yes. like the thing. Even though there's also like fat phobia in the theater and ableism in the theater and like racism and all these awful things. But when I think about like being young and doing shows, I feel like you guys really captured that feeling, at at least for me, which, you know. Thank you. That was our goal. I was like, I really want these books to have that tone of when Mm. you first fell in love. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. And, like, all the, like, backstage drama and, like, all of, like, even just, like, the specificity of the, like, first, like, opening night gifts that Nat makes for everybody. Like, this, like, these are these little things that I feel like shaped the reason why I pursued this for my life's career. Like, Like, I just felt so good when I was doing theater and the process of it. And of course there were like things that came up that were like super upset. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But, you know, but like I also found my friends Mm. doing theater. And before that I was so freaked out about having a group of friends. I was Mm. like, I'm never going to have a group of friends. I'm only going to have like one friend who'll hang out with me. Like, and that's how I literally felt about myself, Tracy. Like, I was like, who would hang out with me? I just had such low self-esteem about, like, somebody wouldn't want to hang out with me because I'm in a wheelchair. Of course, I never said those things out yeah. loud, but yeah. that's how I felt inside. Right. And so, like, the theater world and the theater community and the theater kids that I grew up with, like, changed my entire self-worth, mm. which is like kind of heavy to say, yeah. but it was like my life was changed by it. Ugh. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished, and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. 
The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about choreography because that's a huge part of the book. And in my past life, I was a choreographer. I choreographed you in a show, which after reading the book, I was like, I probably was a monster and so sorry if <laughs> no, I was you were mean. Not. I was no, like reading the book not. being like, this feels like something I would say. No <laughs> way. That was not. No. No, no I don't. I don't. I not. don't think that it's me. But I was just like, oh, yeah, sure. At 20, I probably didn't understand. <laughs> Anyways, point being, one of the big things that Nat has to do throughout the book is she calls it um, like translating the choreography. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, she's the lead in Footloose, which for those of you who don't know, heavy dance show, big dance show. And there's this specific number. Um, it's, what is it? We need a, I need a hero. We need yeah. a hero. That's all. And there's these other girls in the show who are dancers and they are in this number with her and they are just like their dream is to become Rockettes. And they're real little bitches, okay? That's what they are. You know those little fucking girls. You know those little eighth graders? That's who the fuck they are. And we hate them. But I had never really heard of or thought of, like, the idea of translating choreography. Though when I think back on when we work together, that's exactly what you would do. And and so I'm wondering, like, is that a is that a phrase that is common in the theater? Is that something that is always like required of the person in the wheelchair? Have you had experiences where there have been choreographers who choreograph for you and then translate for people who are not in wheelchairs? Like, I'm just really curious about that whole process. Yeah. So 
the word translation kind of came out of my experience with Deaf West. Okay. Because that's when you did Spring Awakening, right? Correct. Yeah. So I made my Broadway debut in 2015 with Deaf West's Spring Awakening. And the whole show was in American Sign Language and spoken and sung. And for like two years of my life, we, I heard the word translation every single day. Mm. And it got me thinking about the way that I think people in wheelchairs have to translate physically. Mm-hmm. And it sort of opened up this whole like system that I can think about movement. And I wish I had been given these tools when I was in college, but the truth was because I wasn't given anything, I was forced to figure out how to make it work. And I really wanted to take dance class. And so I would sit at the bar in ballet with everybody and they'd be doing most of the class with their feet. Right. And I just decided to begin to translate and do it with my hands. Mm. And so this word was like, oh, I do that. I do. When I kept hearing it, I was like, oh, I do that physically. And it then got me thinking about like, what is my physical vocabulary and how do I move? And so I decided to give all this stuff to Nat. I was like, she deserves to have it. And so, um, you know, in this show, like the, I mean, in the book, in the show, like, and this is a huge part of theater is like, Part of what we love about high-level theater is the precision of it all. Sure. And that always made me really nervous, Allie, as an actor in musical theater. Right. Is that like, am I going to stick out? Like, is it going to make the show worse? Like, is it mm. not going to be good? And thank goodness I've had really positive experiences where people talk about the movement that I do. And they're like, oh, my God, it made the show so cool. Like, we loved it. But in the book... Nat is not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And so she has one of her best friends, Hudson, who's a dancer. And again, she's surrounded by able-bodied people. And Nat is, that was my experience. And that's why I did this, is that most of the time in my career and um, growing up, I was the only person in a chair. So I had a choice of either like, I don't fit and I'm going to stay stay on the side mm-hmm. or like I'm going to try to make this work for myself. And the truth is, is that I know my physical movement better than anybody. Sure. I know how far I can push. I know like I'm not necessarily a, necessarily a choreographer, but I've watched so carefully what like choreographers are looking to create pictures. Yep. And so I'm like, how do I fit into that? Mm. So like one of the things is like, when we are all doing a turn, mm-hmm. like it's more satisfying to see everybody land together than we need everybody to take off together. Right. And I need more time to turn. So this is like another thing that I gave Nat. And I wanted this book to be about dance because my whole life growing up, Tracy, everyone was like, well, how do you dance? Right. You can't dance. How do you dance? And I was like, ay, ay, ay. People <laughs> just have never seen it. Right, right. So that's part of why I, and especially for kids, like even little kids are like, well, how do you dance? Like, how do you do that? And it's genuine. It's not mean. It's just, I don't understand. Like if you can't get up Mm -hmm. how, and I'm like, 
that is just because they only know this one physical language. Right. Right. I mean, what I hear you saying is like you're constantly pushing these boundaries of like and these limits of what's possible Um, and oftentimes very publicly. Right. Like Mm -hmm. what is not only what is possible for you, Allie, but also what is possible for the theater. Right. Like that's sort of what you're doing. Is that is that exhausting for you ever to have to constantly be pushing that boundary no, it's exciting to me. It it's energizing to me. Yeah, no, I, I've i heard a lot of my friends in, in the disabled community talk about how exhausted they are. Mm-hmm. And, like, I relate to, like, the physical exhaustion of, yeah. like, yeah. you know, physically and also now, like, having the baby. Like, right. physically, like, because our, a lot of our world is not fully accessible and because I'm still working on creating my world and my life specifically mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm even more accessible than I thought was even possible. I am tired. I am exhausted. But as far as like spiritually and mentally, like Mm. I get, I get energized by this. Like I am excited about creating more theater that has physical movement that we've never seen before. Like I get excited about working with people who have never worked with somebody in a chair and they're like, I want to do this, but like, I'm scared. Like that's where I feel like I get like, like turned on. I'm like, let's go. Like what is possible? And that definitely comes from my childhood because my dad was big on like the impossible, like nothing is impossible. Like, like you can do anything. And that's Mm. why like I do this, I have this motto that I like do when I'm like doing speaking gigs or with kids. And it's like turning your limitations into your opportunities. Like Mm. the thing you think is going to hold you back is the thing that's going to set you free. And I like genuinely, I'm not just saying this, like I genuinely believe that and have lived by that. Mm. It's like my chair has been an opportunity. Yeah. I'm so I'm so happy to be talking to you, Allie. I'm like I feel like I just like I'm so glad to see Allie. <laughs> I'm um, so glad too because I feel like we've never had this kind of conversation. No, no. I I mean it almost feels like what's interesting for me, like just this is sort of like meta, I guess, for the audience. But like what's interesting for me is I've known you for so long, and I feel like this conversation almost feels like extremely personal in a way that I would never ask you. But it's weird because like if that feels wrong also you know like it's like I get to ask you these questions but it's for an audience even though I know you and could text or call you anytime and be like hey Allie tell me about this but there's something about I guess like having the space to have this conversation but no we've never talked about any any of this I think also what I love about this so much Tracy is that like when we were in college I think that well, I'm going to speak for myself. Like we were trying to find our way, mm-hmm. but we were like kind of doing it along, you know, we were in the same circle of friends and like yeah. we were working on shows together. And so there was like, I think always like a real respect for each other, but mm-hmm. I don't think that either of us were able to articulate any of it yeah. at the time. And I certainly wasn't, I was just trying to like figure it out, same. but what I love about how it feels like we were hanging out last night at your apartment is that like for us, like we're able to pick up kind of where we left off. Yeah. And I love that NYU for me was about my peers and my friends Mm -hmm. because I felt like those were the people 
including you, who had my back Mm -hmm. in taking risks. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that support from my teachers. I only felt it from my peers. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of why I am so excited about now being able to articulate this to you because I'm like, I was trying to figure it out at NYU. And now, like, now, yes, yes, this. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So let's fast forward from NYU because I I do really want to talk about this because it's Mm -hmm. part of the book, but it's also like such a huge part of your story is Mm -hmm. that you want a Tony. Um, and so for people who don't know, that's like the big award for Broadway and it's not an easy thing to do period. Like it's a huge life accomplishment. And I saw you in Oklahoma and you were fucking fantastic. A little Ado Annie. Um, (laughs) but so, so I, I watched, I cried. I was so excited for you. And I was thinking about that moment as I'm reading this book and and I'm not going to tell people what happens in the book, but I think I think you already mentioned Nat and her group. They do make it to the Timmys, which means they get to perform on a Broadway stage. And for those of you who don't know anything about a Broadway stage, a lot of the Broadway theaters are super old, a.k.a. in addition to being old, they're super fucking inaccessible. Like yeah. if you're in the audience, the seats are small. There's no leg room. The aisles are small. There's stairs backstage everywhere. Many of the stairs are incredibly dangerous for every single person who has to take step on that. Like I've been back. I can't remember what show Brandon was in where I was like, I'm going to break my neck. trying yeah. to. I think it was American in Paris, wherever that was. Yes. Anyways. So, so in, in the book, you know, Nat has to deal with like navigating this theater. And it made me think about you winning a Tony because it feels like all the odds were stacked against you you know, as far as accessibility is concerned, like even getting you to be able to navigate a Broadway theater, these like Mm -hmm. notoriously inaccessible spaces. So I'm wondering, like, I guess both physically and also emotionally or spiritually or whatever, what that feeling was like for you to win that award. Because, you know, thinking of what you're saying about like impossible and your dad saying like nothing is impossible, it sort of feels like you did an impossible thing. So I'm just Mm. wondering like if it felt impossible to you, if it felt like something special, like, or, or I don't, I mean, obviously something special is a fucking Tony, but like, I I don't know. I'm just curious about all of that. It's like 17 questions. Yeah, no, I love it. So I worked on the two shows that I did on Broadway before, uh, like we did runs before and it wasn't like, like I was cast in basically like off Broadway shows before the shows transferred to Broadway. So when I got cast in those off Broadway shows, there was no like fear in my mind about like, can I do this? Because Mm -hmm. I knew already like where the theater was going to be and that it was going to be accessible. But when I found out that the shows were transferring to Broadway, the first thought in my head was, oh gosh, like I hope I can do it. Mm -hmm. And so what was so amazing and so encouraging was both times, Ken Davenport and Eva Price, who were the producers on Spring Awakening, the producer on Oklahoma, they fundraised to make money to be able to create accessibility backstage for me. Mm -hmm. And they did not put it on the theater owners. They took it upon themselves. And there was never a conversation of, can we do this? It was Mm. like, we're doing this. Mm. And I can't tell you how much that means to me because growing up, that was not always my experience. Like people would just be like, I'm so sorry. Like 
you know, we, like, you know, you're not able to do this because it's not accessible. Hmm. So I've felt that before of like, this space is not accessible. So therefore you can't. So that was a total thing for me when I found out that these shows were transferring and especially with Circle in the Square, which was where Oklahoma was. I mean, it's probably the most inaccessible theater on Broadway because Mm. it's in a basement. Right. I was thinking there's those stairs out front. Yeah. Yeah. And so like I had to go in on the other side of the building and then take like certain like elevators down. And then they put in a chair lift for me to be able to take down to the stage level. And then we created these ramps that look like skateboard ramps, like all over the backstage. And We just did it. And they were like, yes, we're going to do this. And was it perfect? No. But if I was looking for perfect accessibility, it would not have, like, literally because of structure Mm -hmm. and because of, like, the, you know, that this theater was so old, I would not have been able to do it. And so, like, the way in which people have, in my experience of being on Broadway, accommodated for me. I just was real, like, I've been so, you know, and, and Pete, I can hear like all my friends, like I, like my experience of it is I'm so grateful for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have so many friends that are like, you don't have to be grateful. Like you deserve it. Right. 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 But that's not really how I like live. That's not really how I do my life and my world. Like people who want to accommodate for me and like make accessibility, like I treat that as a big deal because mm. it costs money mm-hmm. and it takes creativity and it's not necessarily what maybe they would have to do. Right. And so like that is my, the way that I handle these situations that I am grateful and I am excited. And like, I do want to get, you know, press for Oklahoma in talking about that accessibility that they created backstage because it's a big deal because I don't want to be the only person that they're doing this for. Right. And I'm not going to be, and I'm not, you know, they've done it since and that's great. But back to like being afraid and, and the whole accessibility thing, like it's been, you know, when I did spring awakening, I remember like, I was still in a place in my life where I wanted to be carried and like, or I, I wouldn't mind it. So people would like carry me downstairs so I could Mm -hmm. see like, you know, at, at the spring awakening theater, like I wanted to see the, um, you know, underpass. Yeah. 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 Because I just wanted to be like a part of it. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's been the shift, right? Is that for so long, I just wanted to be a part of Right. The experience. Mm -hmm. And now, as I've gotten older, like, I have made an agreement with myself that I will not perform at inaccessible spaces. Because if I don't draw a line, it will never, if I continue to accommodate for other people, it will never change. Right. Right? So, this has been, like, a huge shift for me. And when we knew each other in college, I was always like, yeah, just carry me. We'll make it work. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Because I never wanted to be left behind. Right. But now there's a bigger reason to be left behind. Do you feel like your success has given you that? Or do you feel like that's something that's come just from getting older? And obviously those two things go hand in hand. 
But like, do you think that if you'd never won a Tony or you'd never been on Broadway that you would still feel like I don't want to be left behind? Or do you think just like as you've gotten older, you've realized that? Well, yeah, I think a big part. Well, there's two pieces. I think that having success has made me feel like that I am in a position now to Mm -hmm. be able to say like, this is what I need. Mm -hmm. And I'm not as afraid of like not getting an opportunity. Right. And also just like in my growth as a person, as a human being, like, and especially in my relationship and in my marriage, like, um, so we went to college with my husband, David and, um, when David and I got together, I remember we had these really, really intense conversations just about accessibility. Mm-hmm. And I just had this whole perspective on it. And he, like, was, like, pushing, like, mm. oh, well, what if this? And, like, what if you, like, asked your, you know, your family to get ramps into their homes? Or what if you asked, like, you know, that rehearsal be somewhere that's totally accessible? And I remember feeling so triggered because I had agreed right. to accommodating for others because I was so afraid that somebody wouldn't want to accommodate for me. Mm. And he was sort of like, well, if they don't want to accommodate for you, like, are they worth it? Right. And I was like, ah, you're changing. <laughs> you're how breaking I'm my about brain. This. <laughs> yeah. Totally. But it was a huge moment because he was like, I think you deserve the world. Mm-hmm. And I was like, thank you, but that's not the way the world is. Mm. And there are parts of this that, like, obviously I still believe. Like, I know that a lot of the world is not accessible for me. Mm-hmm. However, I have found that it's been huge in my relationship, in my relationships with my family, with my friends, to ask for it. Mm-hmm. Because people really want to get on board with me and then they want to like help me create accessibility everywhere. Right. And so like it's changed my life. Mm. And so like with theaters and performing and in my career, like it's just a given that like if they can't accommodate for me, then they don't get me. And that's how I like to sort of think about it now that like if they're, and also if they're not ready to accommodate for me, then they're not ready, you know, to do it. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been really intense to shift that. Um, and there's been a lot of fear and a lot of tears to like step into my worth. Right. Um, it hasn't just been like, wow, I feel good now. Right. Because there's probably not- times where you say, I can't do it unless it's accessible. And they say like, OK, well, then you can't do it. And that's right. probably really crushing, too, if it's a thing that you want. A hundred percent. But when they say yes. <laughs> Yeah. And for me to say no, in the end, puts me in a powerful position. Yes. Yes. But you don't know that when you're young. Right. Right. And it doesn't always feel that way in the moment. Like having to say no to a thing you want, regardless of like what the end goal is, sometimes feels absolutely dreadful in the moment because it's a thing that you want. Yeah. Or that you feel like you should have. And like for someone 100%. to be like, no, we're not going to do that is like, well, I feel like, yeah, I can just imagine how, I mean, I can't imagine. I felt that. Like, I know what that feels like to be rejected in that kind of way when you want something. But then afterwards being like, well, actually, 
I'm a, like a little bit better off now or like I've done something that's like meant means something to me, even though in that moment it's like devastating. Yeah. And from my experience, when you do say no to something or someone, it sets you up in your life to be um, in another hemisphere mm. of living your truth. Yeah. Not to get too heady about this, right? Because I know that not everybody believes this, but like when you take a step closer to you mm-hmm. and every part of you, then you begin to attract more and more right. projects, relationships, work, um, everything that is more like you. Mm-hmm. And I have felt that like even over the past few years, and it's been so hard to say no at times. And yet it has brought me so much clarity about who I am. I love that. Okay. I'm doing like a really hard shift. We always talk about this. How do you like to write? How often do you listen to music or no? Are you in your home? Are there snacks and beverages? Are there rituals? Kind of set the scene for when you're writing. Um, I like to write in my car. Okay. On a computer? On your phone? um, On a piece of paper? Depends. Okay. I do write a lot on my phone and I dictate. Okay. Because I, um, I, my ideas come out when I'm speaking. Got it. So writing for me, like at a, on a blank screen, I'm like so afraid. <laughs> I'm like, this is, this just feels the opposite of creative for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also love to write like speaking out loud with Stacy, and okay. she'll write. Because then she'll add. Mm. Um, I also, but I do also love, okay, I don't know if any writers or anybody listening to this can relate. But I feel like if I have one piece of text, whether it's like something from the book or something else, I like need a launching point. So So you'll like paste it on the screen? Yeah. And then I launch off of it or I'll take a piece of it and then I'll add to it. But a lot of times I'm speaking out loud. Okay. What about snacks and beverages? I like drinking coffee because I like sort of feeling like, you know, energized (laughs) and like hyper and like, I feel like, especially for me speaking wise, then I can like talk faster and think faster. Okay. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, gosh. I never spell exercise. Ooh, okay. I wasn't going to ask you this, but now I want to know. What is your dream role? Mm, I mean, this is not what people want to hear, but I want to originate a role because I want a role to exist on Broadway that's some that's a character in a chair and it's not Nessa Rose where she used to walk in act two. Right. Sorry. Spoiler alert. But spoiler like, alert. not that anyone. <laughs> so, has spoiler to wicked, a show so. that came out in 2004. <laughs> yeah. No, but, um, but I, um, but I want to originate a role. I want that to exist on Broadway or, and in the canon. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. For people who like cut loose, What are other books that you might recommend to them? Ooh, that's a fun question. (laughs) Um, 
Okay. Well, obviously the first book, The Chance to Fly. Um, which is about Wicked. Which is about Wicked. Um, I would, um, i trying to look right now. What am I, what am I into? Oh, oh, oh. Being Human, which oh. is Judy Human's memoir. Yeah. Um, I voiced it. Oh, I did, did the audiobook. Yeah. Oh and um there's there's a uh like big version and then there's like an adult version and then there's um like a kids version. Okay. So if you're young and are not into like really long biographies, I would suggest uh what did I read recently that I loved? Um I also am gonna plug my my children's book, Allie and the Sea Stars, um, which is a children's book. If you have kids in your life, it's a sweet, sweet book. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to go off of like all of my like original favorite books that I talk about. Um, I love Taste by Stanley Tucci. I love biographies, by the way. I Wait, know you have to so read, have ridiculous. you read this book, Country of the Blind by Andrew Leland? No. Okay. You have to read it. Really? He, he, it's, it's a book about disability and accessibility and accommodations and everything. He has RP. So he's slowly been going blind. So he writes oh, a book whoa. all about blindness and like blind culture and blind community at, from this place of like, I'm not blind to like, oh, I am blind to like, oh, yeah. these are my people. And I feel like you would really fuck with it. It's one of the best yes. books I read this year, but just like a lot of the things you've talked about today have, um, reminded me of things that either Andrew and I spoke about or things that I read in the book. Sorry, Taste by Stanley Tucci. I just cut you off. I just am telling no, you. No, are you kidding me? I love it. I love it. Um, and then, uh, I'm. you know what? I'm, for whatever reason, on a disability pit, a kick. So Driving Forward by Sophie Morgan. Okay. Um, it's her biography. And she is one of the people that I have not met in person but came across online and was like, she's like me. Oh, my gosh. Those are the books that stick with me. Yeah, of course. I mean, I hope that doesn't sound narcissistic. No, I but think like that's how some, everybody feels about every book that they've ever loved. Is like, yeah, this like some to part me. of me. Yeah, yeah, some part of me that like that is that is that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, last question for you: If okay. you could have one person, dead or alive, read Cut Loose, who would you want it to be? <laughs> Allie just made a face of like, oh my god, read it. Like, yeah. like, as in do the audio book or as in like, no, have just it like, and read it. Just read it. Oh, like Michelle it. Obama. Always. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah. who I want to have dinner with. She's yeah. who I want to read she's my book. She's your answer she's for who, everything. Literally like one five minute phone call. Like I want to meet Michelle Obama. I'm have putting you it in the world. Have you never met Michelle Obama? I feel like we no. can get that, make that happen. No, I've never met. I've never met Michelle Obama. I am dying to meet Michelle Obama. Okay, Michelle, if you're listening, come meet Allie. Also, come Michelle, meet me really, while you're at it. Yeah, we would love to meet you. We're available. Yeah, we'll take you for dinner. Yeah, we love it. We love it. Okay, everybody, this has just been so much fun for me personally, but I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with the author of Cut Loose, Allie Stroker, Tony Award winner, activist, author, Broadway star, wonderful human. Thank you so much for being here, Allie. Thank you so much, Tracy. This was so fun. So fun. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, that does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Ali Stroker for being my guest. I'd also like to say thank you to Amanda Torrell for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget, Mitchell S. Jackson will be back on the stacks to discuss our book club pick, Severance by Ling Ma, on Wednesday, November 29th. 
If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks back. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram threads and TikTok, and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. Plus you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of the stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 